Good morning. Good morning. We have our announcements. We're feeding the homeless this Wednesday. If you want to go. Weather permitting. Weather permitting. Is it supposed to snow bad? Of course we are. We'll see. Well, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. If you were with us last Wednesday, you got to see Donald. <laughs> so Donald is the one we were praying for. Then we thought we had the report that he's lost his hands, both hands and both feet, to frostbite. But that was a lie. We got to see Donald. He does have frostbite on his one finger, and it is like shriveled and black, and on his one toe. But he didn't lose any fingers, any toes, any hands. So that was all just a seems like a lie from the enemy mostly to get us discouraged and distracted and out of place so good no no no, no. i was so excited to see him and that was like a that was all a god thing had it been there one minute earlier or one minute later i would have missed him and never saw him because the camp that he's in now is not a camp that we go to and he just happened to be coming up the railroad tracks which i don't always drive down the railroad tracks but today, that day, John was pretty adamant that he had yeah. to drive down the railroad tracks. And we yeah. spent our time leading up until this point. Had we, you know, maybe not have prayed with as many people or talked to as many or spent as many time with as many people before we saw Don, we would have missed him completely. So, or had we been one minute later. What did Ming say when you told him? Ming was pretty excited. Yeah. So, Ming loves Donald. So, yeah. to hear that he was okay was great. Actually, Donald said it was all God that did it. He uh, ended up spending some time in jail for a trespassing ticket that he never paid, and that's where he was. So, but he said it was good because the camp that he was in was not good for him. There was a lot of bad things going on, and he had fallen into that. So, he said that God had removed him for it, and he was very thankful. So it was kind of cool to see. That was awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. They love Matt. Uh-uh. <laughs> we do love them. Yeah. So Thursday, the twenty-third. Is women's Bible study you finish up the book you're on? Okay. And then do we need to order other books for you? Well, besides that, that well, we have to see how many people and how many books. Okay. You just have to let me know because it takes like a week to get them. Okay. The next men's Bible study is this Saturday, February 18th. This Saturday coming up. That means Kylie, you're going to have to... Take care of Major at the show in the morning. Actually, got there. The next youth group is March 9th. Oh. Right? You're going to skip the next one because women's Bible studies that night? You sure you want to do that the day after your birthday? Oh. Uh, that is the day after my birthday. Are you doing the children? I'll be, recover- I'll be recovered by then. Yeah. What, recovered. what season are you doing? First, first. Still the first, first season. season. Yeah. First season, episode four. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen the third one yet? No, we haven't watched the third one yet. Oh, it's on the second one. Yeah. Yeah. They have a third one? I thought the second one was the Uh, with that, we have email, sign up for email updates once a week. Send out an email so you know what's going on, or you can check it out online for churchne.org. There's a calendar there. 
that is usually up to date. So with that, I will pray. Dear Father, I just thank you for this time to come together. I ask you would um, watch over us, that you would draw us closer to you, that you would um, just fill this time with your words, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would meet each one of us right where we're at, that you would um, lead us and guide us through this study. Yes, your words would be spoken here today. You would watch over us, that you would protect us um, physically, but protect us spiritually, protect our thought lives, protect the uh, attacks from the enemy that come um, in ways that, that tell us that we're not good enough or that we can't be forgiven or whatever those attacks are. You would protect us from those. You would lead us and guide us through them. You would um, just watch over us and bless us, encourage us in your word and in who you are. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. So we are going to start off. We're going to be mostly in Romans 10. We're going to have a couple of verses before we get there. But if you want to go to Romans 10... So we're going to talk a little bit today. We finished up our study in Romans last week, and I think our next book is Hebrews. But before we get to Hebrews, we're going to take a couple weeks and talk through um, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is that? Um, as we've taught before, and as you guys know, I don't believe that you can lose your salvation. I think the Bible makes that clear. And we're going to talk through a little bit more of that. We're going to look at some different things today that speak to that. Um, probably the biggest one that we won't go into today because we didn't have enough time. Um, but we've talked through it before. Is the story of David during his time with Bathsheba. So David, a man of God, um, a man known for having a heart after God's own heart, ends up in uh, an affair with Bathsheba and then ultimately murders her husband Uriah and in that time when God um, calls David out uses his prophet Nathaniel to, to say to David you know um, David you, you said you've done this awful thing and David realizes it and repents um, during that time in the Psalms he writes God returns me the joy of your salvation he doesn't ask God to return to him salvation, meaning he never lost it. And we've talked through that before, and we'll go through some of that in other areas today, some other places that speak to the same thing. So um, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, we'll start here in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. Um, they'll be up on the screen, and then the majority of what we'll go through is going to be Romans chapter 10 to get started here this morning. So Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. Listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen to you anymore. So during this time, he's speaking to the nation of Israel um, and and this is just one of the areas of the Bible that makes it clear that sin separates us from God. That God cannot be part of sin. And that we are sinners. That came down to us through Adam. But even if Adam hadn't sinned or Eve hadn't sinned, we would have sinned and we would have screwed it up for everybody. Right? So, we have all sinned. Um, and sin separates us from God. So, 
And sin is just not things, or just is not just things that we shouldn't do, um, but it's also not doing the things we're supposed to. And James makes that clear in in chapter four, verse seventeen. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not to do it. Right. So God has things that we're not supposed to do, and God has things that we are supposed to do. And when we do the opposite of those, that's sin, no matter what that is. God doesn't minimalize it or rationalize it in any way. He makes it very clear what is sin and what is not. Remember how Jesus explained it. The two greatest commandments, number one, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And when you've done those two, you've met the requirements of the law, right? So those are the that's all that sums up it all if i want to live a godly life if i want to be a christian witness to those around me i'll love god first everything i do will be in love of god and what is love love's not a feeling but love is an action love is denying myself picking up my cross and following jesus love is serving if i want to love my spouse i will serve my spouse right If I want to love my neighbor, I will serve my neighbor. I will go out of my way. I will set aside my own pride um, to to help someone else, right? That's what love is. Love is a self-sacrificing love. Like Jesus on the cross, when Jesus went to the cross, he went willingly. No one forced him to go. He did it of his own free will. Even though we read before he went to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, He didn't want to go. He's pleading with God. God, is there any other way, right? And what is he asking? He's saying, God, is there any other way for these people to be saved other than this, other than the cross? And the answer was no. There is no other way to be saved other than for Jesus to go to the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins, right? And that was the perfect example of what love is, a self-sacrificing love. Jesus was willing to sacrifice himself for us. And that's how we are to love others. So sin separates us from God. But Romans chapter 10 paints a pretty clear picture of how do we get right with God or how are we saved, right? So we've all lived a life, a sinful life at some point. Um, And there may be people out there who have some minor sins and maybe told a lie once or twice when they were five years old. I just haven't met them. Everyone I know, everyone I've met has some pretty big sins in their lives, right? So not little things, but we're also going to hit on that too today. It's very important you don't minimalize sin. But most people I know, in fact, everyone I know, has some pretty major sins in their life. And they're desperately in need of a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. And Paul makes that clear here in Romans chapter 10, starting here in verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal, for they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. 
So here we read, all who believe in Jesus are made right with God. And Paul's going to further explain that, and we'll keep going through um, the next few verses. But here we read that the, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, are trying to get right with God by keeping the law. And while, yes, if you live a perfect life, that will put you right with God. But as we just talked about, no one is capable of that. No one has done that. And if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, we would have, and we would have screwed it up, right? Has anyone here lived a sinless life thus far? <laughs> Not I. Not I. So, so while keeping the law, um, and we'll get to that, what does that mean? Um, but that's how the nation of Israel was trying to get right with God, which is not possible, right? They're trying to come to God their own way and to minimize sin, uh, to do it in another way other than accepting Jesus. And there is no other way other than believing in Jesus. So we'll continue on verse 5. For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. So again, if you were perfect, you could be made right with God, which none of us in this room are. No one I know ever has. But continue on in verse 6. But faith's way of getting right with God says, Don't say in your heart, who will go up to heaven and bring Christ down to earth? And don't say, who will go down to the place of the dead and bring Christ back to life again? So Paul is beginning to contrast the law and grace, the law and the work that Jesus did on the cross. This unmerited, um, we've done nothing to earn it, favor of God, this, this undeserved gift. We've done nothing to earn or deserve this free gift of salvation, but here it's been presented to us. That's what grace is. The law is, is the regulations of how we're to live our lives. Um, and, and God, in his infinite wisdom, knew that we wouldn't be capable of that. That his standards are perfection. And that we weren't capable of achieving that. But he didn't just leave us where we're at. He sent his son, knowing that we weren't capable of that. He was willing to sacrifice himself for us to pay that penalty, to be that bridge to a relationship, to be in right standing, to be righteous with God. Jesus paid that penalty, is that bridge for us. And that when we receive him, we have eternal life. And Paul is going to explain that a little more in depth in the next two verses, or in the next few verses. So, but we are saved. The other contrast that you have in, in the law and in grace is that we are saved by faith, not by our works. And we're going to go into that because there's a combination of the two um, and how do they work together. But we are saved by faith, not by our works. And that's important. That's a key, um, a key to our Christian faith is that we are saved by faith, not by our works. Our works don't get us close to God because our works will never stack up, right? Our works are always going to be tarnished by the sin in our life. And the only way to not have the the good things we've done in life tarnished by the bad things we've done in life is to receive Jesus, to ask him for forgiveness. Because what does Jesus do when we ask for forgiveness? He removes it from our record, right? It's never brought up again. We've been over that. We've looked at different areas where that's come up, where we read about people in the Old Testament and the sinful things they do. But then when we read about God recounting them in the New Testament, he, he counts them as faithful. You know, 
when he counts Lot as a righteous man and we read some of the awful things that Lot did, well, does that mean that God is contradicting himself? No. It means that God is true to his word. What was between Lot in the Old Testament and Lot's God recounting Lot in the New Testament? Jesus was. Jesus sacrificed on the cross. And that when Jesus went to the cross, when we ask for forgiveness, he truly takes away our sins. And we've been over that. Many places, God has made that clear to us. He removes them from our record, right? So, No human works will ever be good enough to get us to, get us to heaven. No human works can, can go bring Jesus down to earth. No human works can bring him back from the dead. Only God can. But where things are impossible, humanly speaking, all things are possible for God. So continuing on here, Romans chapter 10, verse 8. In fact, it says... The message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. So this salvation is faith-based, right? Not by works, but by our faith in who Jesus is. But here, it sounds like a two-part salvation. That we believe, we confess with our mouth, we believe in our minds, and then when we believe in our hearts, when we receive him in our hearts. So what does that mean? Well, the best way I can explain that is in my own life. Growing up in a Christian home, I knew who God was. In my mind, I believed that there was a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They created the heavens, the earth, everything we see. I believed all the stories I read in the Bible. I believed that God sent a big fish to swallow up Jonah. I believed all that, but it didn't change the way I lived. And it wasn't until it changed the way I lived till I received Jesus into my heart and my life changed was I truly saved. And the way I can explain that is, had I died before the age of 30, I was not going to heaven. And while that sounds harsh, that is the true reality. And there is some true realities and some harshness to our Christian faith as to what does it mean to be a Christian. And I've always thought of it as a transverse line, you know, that I walk across to become that Christian, and it is. But I think a lot of people want to think of it as this longitudinal line, this line I'm walking down and, and trying to step on which side, the left side or the right side. Um, if I do this, I'm saved. If I do this, I'm not. And that's not the way it is. It's a step across the line. And when we try to define this line very clearly, of what's the minimum I have to do to be saved, that's a dangerous place to be. I don't know of anyone that can define it. And my, answer, my question to you would be, why would you want to know what the minimum is to be saved? Why would you not want to be clearly across that line? This is a huge matter. This is for all of eternity. Where are you, where are you going to spend all of eternity? In paradise, in heaven with Jesus, or in hell, in isolation, in heat, in, in misery? And it's not, hell is not a place where you're with all the other people who chose to reject Jesus. No, you're in isolation. You're in misery. You're 
for all of eternity. And does that mean that we serve this very angry God that would do that? No, we serve this very loving God that is warning us all throughout our lives. Receive me and have eternal life. Right? So, this line is not a line we're walking down in left or right steps. Um, am I across the line? I, am I saved? Am I not saved? No. It's a, it's a line I transversely that I step across. And I don't want to just... What's the minimum step I have to take across it? I want to come across it all the way, right? I don't want any doubt in my mind. There's already enough doubts that the enemy puts in my mind. Of, I'm not good enough. I can't be forgiven for this. You're not able to accomplish this or whatever it is. And the enemy always wants to come against whatever God tells me. Does that make sense? That this fine line is not something we should try and define. We should want to jump across so that we know that we are saved. So, this two-part salvation, or the way it sounds, this confessing with our mouth and believing in our hearts, I would really tell you that's a one-part salvation, and that is what faith is. That yes, I have this knowledge of who Jesus is in my mind. And once I've received him in my heart, when I believe in my heart, and it changes the way I live. I once lived a sinful life. I've repented from that, and I've turned and lived the other way that I am truly saved. And it's not really a two-part salvation, although I'll describe it in that way. It's really a one-part thing. It's my faith in Jesus. I believe in, his, I believe in who he is. I believe what the Bible tells me. And when I believe it in my mind and I receive it in my heart and my life changes, then I am truly saved. Does that make sense? So, we'll continue on here in Romans chapter 10, with a few more verses. So continuing on, Romans 10, verse 11. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? Everyone. Not a chosen few, not a select. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For God so loved the whole world that he sent his son to die for us. Right? Everyone. So, I think of, I think there's a danger of thinking, well, I, I, I believe in my, my head and I believe in my heart and I have this changed life. But what if someone believes right at the end of their life? Um, they don't have any good works to show for it, maybe, or maybe not. I think of the thief on the cross who dies at the end of his life and receives Jesus. And what does Jesus tell him? Today you will be with me in paradise. And I would say to you that he, he believed in his, his mind who Jesus was. He confessed that, that Jesus was Lord. Um, but he also believed in his heart. And that... Um, when he did that, Jesus received him. And that was all it took, right? He lived a, a life, a sinful life. That's probably why he was on the cross next to Jesus. He said that he deserved to die. But Jesus received him when he changed his heart, right? And he, he even argued with the other thief on the cross that was persecuting Jesus, right? So we have this evidence of a changed heart, a new man, Paul calls it a new creation. We're a new creation when we believe in Jesus. Jesus talked about it with Nicodemus as a born again, being born twice, being born once physically, 
which we all were, but then being born again spiritually. That we've received Jesus, we have this new life. And are we going to walk in that? So, with all of that, we're going to jump around to a few other verses and look at now that we've established what it means to be a Christian. If you have questions on this, you could ask them right now. This would be appropriate. No? Okay. Now, let's look at things like what David did. What does God say about that? Some people will say, well, there's a danger if you're going to teach that you can never lose your salvation, then people become saved, but then go on to live sinful lives. But it doesn't matter that they're saved. Mm, Not quite true. God has some pretty harsh words, and we're going to go through some of those. But again, it's also going to point to the fact that you can't lose your salvation. Now, there are people who can come into a church, claim to be saved, but never actually receive Jesus, right? Can maybe speak the the words, the... uh, Talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. Their hearts are far from him. We see that with the Pharisees. The Pharisees could say all the right things, um, but their hearts were, were desperately wicked, right? So we can see that too. So there's the option that people can come in, can act like Christians, talk like Christians, but never receive Jesus, never truly change their hearts, and never were saved. And we'll see some examples of that here today too. So we'll go to James chapter 2, verse 18 through 20. So we're going to go through here kind of in the last half. We're going to go through quite a few different verses. Um, And they'll all be up on the screen so you can read them. And they will all be on the notes on the website if you want to look there too. But there'll be quite a few verses, but it it paints this picture. I do believe that, that... the Bible, the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is um, God's word and it's all meant um, to teach us, to grow us. Um, that we can easily take one verse and take it out of context. We've been over that. We can t- take you to, to one verse in the Bible where it says there is no God. But when I put it in context, the sentence before says a fool in his heart says there is no God. So anyone can take the Bible out of context, can pull one verse or, or one series of verses out and make it say whatever they want. But when I look at the whole counsel, where else does God's word say this as a whole? What is that whole message? And that's what God is calling us to do. So James chapter 2, verse 18. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, Others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? So when he says that even the demons believe that there is one God, they believe in God. That's what we're told. When we believe in Jesus, we are saved, right? So even the demons believe this. And who are the demons? They're fallen angels. And why would they believe this? Because they've seen Jesus. They've been with Jesus. They know Jesus. But we can do the same thing. We can know, have a head knowledge of who Jesus is, but it not change our lives, Right? And what James is saying here is not that works get us to heaven. Our good deeds don't get us to heaven. But there should be evidence when I've made this commitment that I want to 
Jesus into my life. My heart has changed. I've repented. I once walked a sinful way, and now I'm going to walk the opposite. There should be some evidence of that. And James is saying that evidence is, is these good things that you're going to do. God's going to put it on your heart to do these good works, to go serve others, to sacrifice your own time, talents, and treasures, to put others' needs ahead of your own, and that that is evidence of your faith. Now, can people do that without having faith in Jesus? Absolutely. There's people that can do that, that want to come to God their own way, right? I'm a good person. I, I'm going to, how could God reject me when I get to the, the pearly white gates, right? Because I've lived this good life. Well, our standard of good doesn't match God's standard of good. God's standard of good is perfection. And none of us has lived that perfect life. There is only one way to the Father, and that is through the Son, through our belief in Jesus, right? But what James is saying is not that our works get us to heaven, but our works are an evidence of our changed life, right? I once lived this hardened life, living uh, wild and parties, or wild and crazy and parties and everything else, but now I live a life different than that. Those, and those works that I do is the work that God is doing through me, right? So, again, it... it appears to be a two-part thing, right? I have faith, and now I have evidence of good works, but it's not really a two-part thing. That faith in Jesus, that I truly believe in my heart, Jesus is who he is. He is God, and he did save me, and now I want to serve him, and that's that evidence of, of a good works, and it's all kind of a one-thing deal. It's all that faith in him. I truly believe he is who he says he is, and it's changed my life, and that's what James is saying here. We are going to go, so we've heard what Paul says, kind of this two-part um, thing to salvation. We've heard what James has said about it. But now let's go to John chapter 11, verse 25. What does Jesus himself say about it? So this is John chapter 11, verse 25. This is where Lazarus has died. Um, and his sisters are there and and they're saying to him, well, Lord, if you'd only been here, he never would have died. And Jesus is talking through that with them. But he explains salvation to us too, right here in these two verses. And these are his own words. So um, while I do believe that the entire Bible is God's words, that man may have wrote them down, but they were inspired by God. The Holy Spirit led these men to write down what they wrote, right? This is all God's word, but... When I get to the parts that are in red, that are Jesus' words himself, Jesus is God. This is God's word straight from his mouth. Well, I believe that all the Bible is inspired by God and is God's word. Um, these hold just a little bit higher standard, right? If I want to know what is God like, well, I'll go read what Jesus was like. What did he talk about? How did he act and behave? So he sent the example for us, that perfect example. But... In, Jesus, in John chapter 11, verse 25, we read that Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? So here we read again, this is like a, another two-part thing. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me in me will never die, right? And really, it's not a two-part thing. It's a one-part. I believe in Jesus. I received him in my heart, 
and my life has changed and now I'm living for him, right? It's really a one part thing, but I think when I talk about it as a two part thing and I want to know, am I really saved? Well, I believe in my mind who he is. I believe God's word. I've confessed that with my mouth, right? I'm not to be ashamed of Jesus and the work that he did on the cross. But if I want some reassurance that I am saved, what does my life reflect? Do I live a different life than I did before I was saved? And if I do, and I'm continuing to pursue after the things of God, then that's evidence for my own peace of mind that I am saved. Because I don't know about you, but early on in my Christian life, many times the enemy would come against me. You can't be saved. You can't be forgiven for this. You can't, God can't have moved past that. And it's all lies. And I think God makes it very clear. We've been to three different areas that give us this reassurance that I believe in Jesus. That belief is in my heart and evidence of a changed life, right? And now I have examples in my life, fruit in my life that show that. Now, does that mean that I act perfect? No, I am far from perfect. And Paul says this too. Paul, who, who's known, I think, as a man of great faith, struggles throughout his life. Why do I do the things I hate? And he writes this when he's talking about sinful things. He still falls short of God's glorious standard of perfection. And this is as he's a mature believer. So I read as a mature believer, even Paul struggles with sin. So we'll get to define um, some, well, we'll continue on and we'll we'll talk through this. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 10. There's a difference between my life before, when I willfully walked in sin, and my life afterwards. And, and while I still sin, while I still may lose my temper, am I a light and a witness? Do I ask for forgiveness? Um, and yes, I will never be perfect on this side of heaven, but I sin a lot less than I did before Jesus came into my life. And I think that's a question we can all ask ourselves. Do I sin a lot less after I receive Jesus? Is that evidence of a changed life in me? So Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26. Good call. And this is important, this very first verse here. I thought about bringing in some of the other verses. He makes it clear beforehand. He's talking about believers. He talks about the importance of um, gathering of the fellowship of the brethren not to forsake that. He talks about some other things. So Paul, well, the writer of Hebrews, which I tend to believe is Paul, um, is making it clear here. He's talking to believers. And he'll make it clear at the end. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we, meaning believers, sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testament of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be through thought worthy 
who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. So I think there's some important things in here, and we'll unpack them a little bit. But the the first key one is in verse 26, where he says, For if we sin willfully. So there's a difference here, right? There's willfully sinning. I'm going to continue on in this path that I know is wrong. And there's the the sins where maybe I have an outburst of anger, right? Which is still wrong, um, but it happens in the moment. And one thing I would say that we were taught is that if you want to know whether you're a mature believer or not, how long does it take you to ask for forgiveness from God or from others? And if you're going to rationalize it and argue with God for days, weeks, months, that that wasn't really sin, or that really wasn't that bad, you're probably not a very mature believer, right? But when we sin, and we know that we've sinned, God's convicted us of that through the Holy Spirit, are we willing to right away ask God for forgiveness? Then we're probably more mature believer. And we will never be free from sin, this side of heaven, this side of eternity with God, We are not to willfully live in sin. And that's the big difference here. Willfully walking in sin. If I receive Jesus and and I struggle with with partying and alcohol before I receive Jesus, and I continue to walk down that path, if I were to to start to go out and drinking every night and, and partying, I'm willfully walking in sin. That's what he's talking about here. Am I willfully walking in sin? Am I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I repeatedly do it over and over again, right? willfully doing it? Am I willfully knowing something is sin and I do it once, right? But I know that that was sin and I've walked, I've had to take steps to get into that sin. Is that willfully walking into it? Yes. So is my repeatedly doing sin that I know is wrong? Am I willfully walking multiple steps into sin? Um, Then that's what he's talking about here. And he has some pretty harsh words. So for those that say, oh, you shouldn't teach that you can never lose your salvation. Well, I only teach it because I think God's word makes it very clear in many different areas, right? I want to look at all of God's word to make a conclusion on God's character or how he leads and guides us. I think he makes it very clear there. But here he makes it very clear. He is speaking to believers and he has some very harsh words, right? That when we do this, we become fearful. Become fearful of the expectations of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Well, that doesn't sound good to me. That doesn't sound like paradise. That sounds like he has some harsh words for me. And how much worse will our punishment be, right? If someone broke the law of Moses, if someone broke Moses' law on two or three witnesses, they were put to death. If you disobeyed your parents on two or three witnesses, the law says you were put to death. Well, that sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? And Paul's saying, how much worse is the punishment for believers who willfully sin? So that's a big difference, right? So we become a believer. We, we understand what that is. We've thoroughly defined that. But now if we willfully sin, Paul is saying that there, or the writer of Hebrews is saying that there's a big punishment awaiting. So that, that to me doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound like it's no big deal, right? Not that big a deal. And, and we don't define sin in here. 
is major sins, moderate sins, minor sins. I don't read that anywhere in here. He's calling out sin. So one of the dangers of the world that we live in is that the world wants to minimalize sin. It's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. But the problem is when you start to minimalize sin, sin will grow in your life. And we're going to get to that here. With a little bit more to cover. So we might have to speed up, huh? Or could we stay a little longer today, Kylie? So, I just want to point out that, yes, because I become a Christian, do I lose my salvation? Even if I get into gross, willful sin like David, and while I read that David didn't lose his salvation, I believe the, the writer of Hebrews is saying the same thing. Yes, it is possible to be a Christian and live in some gross sin, to willfully sin, but God makes it very clear um, your punishment will be much worse than those who broke the law and were commanded to be put to death, right? It will be um, a greater punishment. And if there's any question of whether or not he's speaking to believers here, in verse 26, he says, we have received the knowledge of the truth. So we have received the knowledge of who Jesus is. That's important. And in verse 30, he also makes it clear at the very end, the Lord will judge his people, right? So when we become Christians, we become God's children and that he will judge his people. So he is speaking to believers here. Believers can willfully get into sin um, and larger gross sins as well. I think the next two slides I got mixed up. Oh, I'm it. So we're going to go... We're going to look at 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1 here. So 1 John chapter 3, actually we're going to start in verse 4. We're going to read verses 4 through 11. So 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law. For all sin, all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins. And there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. But anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family don't make a practice of sinning, because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning, because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. 
Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. So now we've read before that Christians can willfully sin to get into this gross sin. But here Paul is warning, dear children, he's warning the believers that there are people that can come in among them who can talk the talk and say, I'm a Christian, um, have this, you know, Christianese talk. Hey, brother, how's it going? You know, all that stuff, but are really deceptive because they're living in sin. They haven't changed their lives at all, right? They've had not had that moment where they've repented. They once lived a sinful life and changed, and now they are amongst believers. So Paul gives us this example that if we are practicing sin or willfully sinning, and, and we have this question in our own minds, am I saved? Things like that. Well, if you're willing to willfully sin, to continue on in sin, knowing that something is wrong, knowing that what you're doing is wrong, and we'll go through some of the definitions of what God says is sin, um, and you're willing to do that, yes, I would question your own life. Am I really saved? If I can do these things and it doesn't bother me, if I can live sinfully and it doesn't bother me over and over again, then you should question, have I had that experience with Jesus? Have I been born again? Have I truly received him into my heart and has my life changed? And that is something that we should ask ourselves. If we find ourselves in this position, um, that we're continuing to willfully sin and keep on sinning, that that is a problem and that you need to evaluate your lives. So, Paul is not speaking about believers in that context. He is speaking to believers, but not about believers. The next area we're going to go to is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 5, or starting in verse 1. So 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. I can hardly believe the report about sexual immorality going on among you. So he's writing to the church of Corinth. Some things that even pagans don't do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. Even though I am not with you in person, I am with you in spirit. And as though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man. In the name of the Lord Jesus, you must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit. And so will the power of our Lord Jesus. Then you must throw this man out, hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day of the Lord's return. 
Your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this is sin? And like, let me start that again. Don't you realize that this is sin? Don't you realize that this is sin? This sin. This sin. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Don't you realize this sin is like a little yeast that spreads throughout the whole batch of dough. Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. When I wrote you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. So here we have an example of a man who is living in sin and the church is saying it's okay. It's not that bad. Maybe he's a good person. Um, And while we've been over in other areas, in Romans, where Paul makes it clear not to judge others, here we're being told to judge this person. So what does that mean? Is God contradicting himself? Um, And I would say to you, absolutely not. God never contradicts himself. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. We've been over this. The reason that Jesus taught in parables is he gives a story, right? And that we've been through um, the parable of the the sower and that he explains how the parables are to work. Um, But the reason he taught in parables is that it gives a story. And we can read or listen to that story and superficially or quickly make a decision on who God is, his character, or what he is leading us to do. And if we do it quickly there's a very dangerous chance we could make the wrong conclusion. But when we dig deeper into the story, when we look further into the words and the meanings of the stories that Jesus gives us, we have a deeper understanding of who he is. And while many would make a quick conclusion of who Jesus was and choose to reject him, when we choose to receive him and dig into his word and go deeper into the story and the meanings of what he is talking about, we have a better understanding of who he is. And that's the exact same case here. God is not contradicting himself. We're not to judge others in the form of, I'm better than this person, I haven't sinned like this person, things like that. We're not to judge in comparison. God makes that clear. We're not to judge in the form of condemnation. God makes that clear. I don't know who is saved and who is not saved. There may be evidence of a person being saved by the fruit, but their hearts could be their hearts could be far from God, right? They could have all the actions on the outside, look um, righteous on the outside, but inwardly they could be dead. We read about that with the Pharisees. But here he's saying that we're to judge those 
who are sinning. So here a person has sinned, and we're to not associate with that, and willfully sinned, right? Repeatedly sinned, not willing to leave that sin, but still wants to claim to be a believer. That's what we're to judge. That you can't willfully be a believer and minimalize sin, um, and it be okay with God. And God is saying to judge that person, to remove that person. Because when you do that, when you minimalize sin, when you accept sin, when you say that it's not that big a deal or it's okay, well, now you've minimalized God. And now you've allowed that sin to enter into your life, into um, other people's lives, and that sin will spread. That's what God's saying. Remove that yeast from the dough, otherwise it'll permeate the whole batch. Does that make sense? So while we're not to judge others as to whether or not they're saved or condemn them, we're not to judge others that we're better than anyone else because we're not. Paul makes that clear. Evaluate your own life. We are to judge um, whether or not what is sin and, and if someone is unwilling to repent of their sin and claim to be a believer, put this badge of, of Jesus on their, on their sweatshirts, right, and wear it around, I'm a Christ follower, but live in gross sin, live in obvious sin, live in willful sin. We're not to associate with those people, right? And whether or not this man in particular is a Christian, Paul has some pretty harsh words for the Christian church who are believers, right? So there's some examples of, of what does that look like as a Christian? You know, I, I think we have this idea as a Christian, things will go well or... or um, there won't be conflict, and that just isn't true. There'll be conflict. We'll have to make decisions. Um, we'll have to judge others um, in the capacity that God's called us to, in this capacity. But people can come into the church, can um, misrepresent the church. And that's kind of what we want to talk about next as we finish up here. So we will go, we'll bounce around a few more verses. Yeah. Actually, we'll just be in two more areas. We'll be in Romans, and we will go to Colossians and finish up. So Romans chapter 1, verse 29. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness. Sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malice behavior, and gossip. And they are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. So in this context, Paul is talking about unbelievers. But I find it very interesting for us, because I think we can listen to um, a discussion like this, a study like this, and we are tempted to say, oh, I'm good. I've lived this changed life. I'm good. You know, I may have a little set in my life, but it's not that bad, right? Not that big a deal. Where here, I read that he lists some pretty big sins, right? Some wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malice, behavior, and gossip. Well... Would you put gossip in the same category as murder? And I would say to you that, that here Paul is and does. 
And then he goes on in the next verse, backstabbers, haters of God. That's a pretty big word. Insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. They're advancing the amount of sin that's in the world. And they disobey their parents. Or Paul has some big things in there. He also brings it back to disobedience of parents. Disobeying parents, he lists in the same verse, the same area as haters of God. So I think we as Christians have a tendency to minimize the sin that is in our own life. And there is sin in each one of our lives. Not one of us, even after becoming a believer, is free from sin. And we've defined what what it means to be that believer. And for you, you should know in your own heart. I'll never know if any of you are truly believers. You will know that and God will know that, right? But we, God has made it very clear to each one of us that we can have a clear conscience of whether or not we are in right standing, whether or not we are a believer, a Christian, whether or not we are saved. But when we have that clear conscience, when we've made that choice to serve God, we're not to minimize any of the sin in our own lives. Well, yes, I'm not doing this. And oftentimes we tend to do that. Well, yeah, I may have disobeyed my parents, but I didn't murder someone. Well, here, those two are in the same, in the same area. Paul doesn't talk about major sins and minor sins and moderate sins. God doesn't list them like that. While there is all sin separates us from God, and there is different punishments for different sins, Paul is listing all the sins. And I would encourage you to evaluate your lives as I have to evaluate mine and, and have been all throughout this week leading up to this study. You know, while I, I can see some great sins that I'm no longer doing, what are the sins that are still in my life? And what does God need to help me remove? And he will. When we ask God for help with this, when we find ourselves that, that there's a sin that's in our life when we're studying through his word that we are struggling with, no matter what it is, big or small, If we want to categorize it that way, God doesn't categorize it that way. Ask him to help you. Ask him to help remove it. Pray to him regularly, right? When you found yourself in that sin, the Holy Spirit usually convicts you right then and there. You hear that still small voice. You shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. You crossed the line. Ask him for help. Ask him for forgiveness first, right? Be quick to ask for forgiveness and ask him to help remove that in our lives. And every one of us here, none of us are sinless people even after becoming believers, and we should always be evaluating our own lives. So don't fall into the trap that it's not that big a deal, right? Or at least I haven't done this. That's not what we're being called to do. So continuing on in Romans chapter 1, verse 31, they refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyways. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them. And that's why we're reading these verses, that last part. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them. As Christians, and we minimize sin, and we're encouraging others to do them, does that mean that we're out speaking? You know, you should do this with me? Absolutely, that can mean that. We can encourage others in that way. But we can also encourage others to sin by the way we live our lives. When we're Christians, we're called to be set apart. And when we're set apart, we're to live a life as a light and a witness to Jesus Christ. We have his name on our sweatshirt. We're to live that example. So just living 
a, a life or living and doing sinful things as that Christian, we are encouraging others to do them. And that is a dangerous place to be. And I would caution each one of us not to minimize that. Don't minimize any sin in our lives. Don't accept any sin in our lives. Repent, ask for forgiveness, receive God's mercy, that he removes that sin from your record. Be set free. And this is the last area we'll be in today. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 14. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So remember, sin can be things that we do that God has told us not to, but sin can also be not doing the things he's told us to do. So here he gives us a list of things that we are to do. And when we choose not to do that, when we choose not to show mercy to others, not to be, show kindness to others, not to walk a life of humility, we're living in sin. So we'll continue on in verse 13. Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. That's a key. That's a big one here. So we've become Christians now. We've clearly defined that. We're confident in our walk with Jesus. While we may still stumble with sins, um, other people are still going to sin against us, and we must forgive those. You must forgive others because God has forgiven you, and God has forgiven you for a lot. I haven't yet to meet the person that only told a couple lies when they were five years old. The people I know have large sins in their life, as did, as did I until Jesus removed them from my record. So, verse 14, Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. So we're to clothe ourselves with love. We're to live a life that is love, that's serving others, denying ourselves, picking up our cross, following Jesus. So, continuing on in verse 14, Verse 15, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. In whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So that last verse is, is critical. Whatever we do or say, when we claim to be a Christian, when we confess that to others, we're doing it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. We're representing God himself. And are we being that good representative? Are we reflecting who God truly is? Or are we being the hypocritical representative who is bringing negative light um, to God, to God's name? While we can't change God's character, we can deter others from seeing God clearly, right? We can, we can negatively reflect that light. We can dim the light that Jesus has in our lives. Kind of like the moon reflects the light from the sun, 
we reflect the light of Christ. And we can choose to dim that down by minimalizing sin, by accepting sin, by um, condoning sin, by saying it's not that big a deal, right? And by living sinful lives, either willingly large sinful lives or um, smaller sinful lives. And remember, God doesn't categorize small or large. So we're to do everything we do and be a light and a witness that we've talked about. And this is where God makes it clear. So with that, we're done with our study. I know. That's why it was, it's going to be a two-parter. Do you have any questions? You were trying to stay awake the whole time? Did you stay out too late last night dancing? No. <laughs> no questions? None from you? No. No? So I think in light of everything that's happened this week, God's name is thrown out there. And what does that mean? You know, can people throw God's name out and be a Christian? And yes, they can. And we're not to judge whether or not they're Christians or not. But we do, are to be very careful of how we represent God, right? Does that make sense? We're not to judge others, tell others, you're not a Christian unless you do this, this, or this. I have no idea who's a Christian and who's not. I know what people say. And I can judge that way. And Paul makes that clear. That when they profess to be Christians, they're held to a higher standard, right? But I don't know if anyone's truly saved. So. And no, nor does anyone else know if I'm truly saved, right? But they can see evidence of that maybe in the life that I live. But if I choose to live a sinful life where I have outbursts of anger here or there, am I being that representative of Jesus? And, and if I'm willing to stand up in public and make statements, do they reflect Jesus? in a truthful way, or do we reflect him in a negative way? And I think that was important. And that was definitely obviously on my heart this week with everything that's going on. So that's probably why the study got a little bit longer than it originally was. Just a little bit. It was good for you, though. Did you take good notes? No. All right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's recorded for you, so you can go back and listen to it later on this week. You like what? I, was, I promised I was trying to stay awake. I just saw. I just passed out. <laughs> You're fine. You're fine. Should we pray? Okay. Dear Father, I just I thank you for this thing. I thank you for this time to, to come together and worship of you. I ask that you would lead us and guide us this week in the words that we do speak and how we do represent you, that you would grant us wisdom, that you would grant us patience, that you would speak to us. And if there is sin in our life, undealt sin, we need to deal with, you would convict us of that. Speak to us, remind us, um, and give us the strength and courage to turn to you for that. Lord, I ask that you would um, watch over bring healing to my mom, that you would watch over Scott and Pam. Lord, I talked to Scott this week, and he let me know that, um, that for Pam, the, um, the cancer is, is 
that this is the end of the line, that um, there is no more medical intervention at this point. Um, they have one last effort, and that the only way that, um, that she will continue to live is, is if you do a miraculous work. And he's asking just for your will to be done. So I just ask that we would keep them in our thoughts and in our prayers throughout this week, that your will would be done in, in their lives. And if it's your will, that you would intervene. You would miraculously bring healing to her body, remove the cancer. Lord, I ask you would watch over Kathy. You bring wisdom to the doctors. You guide Christina in her heart. Bring wisdom to the doctors. You would continue to bring healing to Bonnie. Bring wisdom to their doctors. You would watch over Matt and Joey in their knees. You would guide Joey in, in what, what treatment plan to move forward with. You would make that clear to him. Lead and guide him. You would watch over the Coffee family. You give them patience and peace, wisdom, forgiveness, Give them the right words to speak. You would bring them together closer as a family. Point them to you, Lord. I ask you would watch over all those in PTSD and EMDR counseling, that you would lead and guide them. You would lead and guide Ming. You would give him strength. Um, you would watch over the sheriff's department and the police department. You would give them um, protection physically, but protection spiritually. For them, their families, um, you would just lead them and guide them. In, in all that they do. Draw them closer to you. You would guide us to a church so we could support. That you would watch over Greg. That you would bring healing to his body. Um, that you would open his eyes, open his heart to receive you. That he would know that you are God. That you, have, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Um, that he would receive that. And that he would be in eternity for all in paradise for all of eternity. I just ask you would speak heavily, speak loudly to him um, in these next few days. I ask you would watch over our school, you would protect it, you would lead it, guide it, you would um, just continue to place your mighty right hand upon it. It's in Jesus' mighty, mighty name that I pray all these things. Amen. Amen. Amen.